Good morning. Good morning, my wonderful friends. I used to be a visitor here, but I came so often, I wouldn't stay away, and now they call me a friend. And uh, John and I are so, so thrilled to our association with you two and with the rest of the church, your leaders, because rather it's a bit of a mutual admiration society actually going on here, because they love us and we love them, and it's just a marvelous thing. And John and I are deeply thrilled to be involved with you, and we're incredibly proud of you. And we do travel around the world a little bit, so we get to boast about you. And everywhere we go, we say, this is the church you want to look like when you're grown up. So, I mean, we do, with great genuineness and pure hearts, love you very much. And we're very grateful to you for having us. Well, me. John's not well, but I'm here. But um, here we are. We're going to look at the story of Deborah. And doing those worship songs this morning was just extraordinary because she, I mean, she spent her life singing of the goodness of God. She was a most remarkable woman. And if nothing else emerges from this extraordinary story, you will discover, as we just sang, that God is for you. Yeah. Do you know, if you do nothing else but go out of this door this morning thinking, God is for me. It's a fantastic place to live. But I hope the story will illustrate the point even more. Once upon a time, there was a wicked king. He had a very fierce general who had 900 chariots. Life was very hard for the people who lived in that land, and they'd been captured and reduced to slaves. But three people were going to rescue them. One was a woman, a judge, who sat under a tree. The second was a soldier who won a battle in a thunderstorm. And the third was a woman with a hammer and a tent peg. At this point, we need to be cautious because there are a lot of women with hammers and tent pegs putting up their tents at New Wine, even as we speak. So just be gentle, no jokes. This extraordinary story is not a fairy tale, and at every point it is a riveting read. But it's much more than what my dear mother used to call a rollicking good yarn, darling. And it is that, it really is. But it speaks what the Anglican prayer book talks about when it says the loving purposes of God. That's what this story is about. It's about the Lord's dealings with his people then, and by extension and by application, his dealings with us now. Now, I'm going to read the chapter from Judges. You may or may not want to follow along because I'm going to skip bits because I'm time being of the um, essence around here. So I will read. It's, it's an extraordinary story, and you may just prefer, honestly, to listen to it. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan. The commander of his army was Sisera. Because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country, and the Israelites came to her to have their disputes settled, decided. She sent for Barak, and she said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take your army, and I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, and with his chariots and his troops, to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. If you don't go with me, I won't go. Very well, said Deborah, I will go with you, but because of the way you are going about this, the honor will not be yours, for the, the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So they went. 
Now Heber, verse 11, now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites and pitched his tent by the great tree in hard word near Kadesh. When they told Sisera that he'd gone up there, Sisera, together with his 900 iron chariots and all his men with him, went from even harder word to the Kishon River. <laughs> then Deborah said to Barak, go. This is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and his army by the sword, and Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. However, he fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heba the Kenite, because there were friendly relations between them all. Jael went out to meet Sisera, and she said, now come, my lord, come right in, don't be afraid. And he entered her tent, and she put a covering over him, high hospitality. I'm thirsty, he said, please give me some water. So she opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. But Jael, Heba's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and, guess what, he died. And on that day, God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger. Now, it's quite a vivid story. It's got one or two wonderful punchlines, the sort of punchlines, and we read these stories to my children, they loved it. Yuck, they said, as the, it didn't just drive through the head, it went into the ground, you know, they wanted the detail. So it's a pretty remarkable story. But we're looking first at how the story was told. Consider, if you will, the big picture. This is the Bible as history. Moses had been used by God, of course, to, to deliver the Israelites out of the land of Egypt and the Red Sea and so forth. Joshua had been used by God to lead them into the promised land. But after Joshua's death, we are told, there was a generation, another generation, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel, and they forsook him. People are so fickle. So the book of Judges spans that period between Joshua and the ministry of Samuel. And it catalogues recurring cycles of Israelite disobedience, leading to their distress, leading to their crying out to God, leading to him delivering in his kindness and his mercy and his goodness. And the book tells of the oppression of God's people by foreign nations among whom they found themselves living, all of them whose names ended with ites. There were Canaanites, there were Hittites, there were Amorites, there were Perizzites, and they were all baddies. It tells of the deliverance through judges, like leaders, of whom Deborah was one, that God raised because, you see, people need to be led. And their welfare depends very largely on how well-led they are. So that, if you like, is the history, the big picture. Now then, coming in a little closer, the actual story. This is the narrative. This story is set in historical time when Deborah was judge or leader in a geographical place between Raman and Bethel. And sometimes you might say, well, why does that matter so much? You see, I think it matters massively. And I love the detail of the scriptures because what God is doing at every point is reinforcing the authenticity. This stuff happened. It was true. You can tell where it was. We go and look at these places. There was a time. The whole thing is so authentic. 
And of course, it's basically a story of salvation when God rescued his people yet again. And we read at the beginning, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And can't you sense in that verse a sort of tedium? I sometimes think you could almost see the angels rolling their eyes. Here we go again. Yeah, these ridiculous Israelites. Or indeed, these ridiculous people these days. Sin is such a natural default, people. It's such a predictable, predictable, horrible thing. But because the Lord had allowed them to be overwhelmed with all the enemy and the 900 iron chariots and so forth, Israel needed both physical rescuing, but she also needed spiritual rescuing, salvation, which of course is true of us all. So the narrative is told with the tightest economy, lots of detail, that at first sight may seem bizarre. But let me take you to just one verse and see if I can just prove the point of why it matters so much. In verse 11, we read that Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim near Kadesh. And you could be forgiven for thinking, so what? So, who cares? At being told that some random chap picks up his tent, moves north, and his house move commands a whole verse in a cast demanding thousands. It's extraordinary detail. But, think about this. The Kenites had settled in the south of Judah near the Negev desert. Had not Heber separated with his wife from them and moved north, said wife Jael would not have gone with him. She wouldn't have pitched the tent because it was the women that pitched the tents. She wouldn't have pitched their tent where she did and thus find herself in the direct path of the fleeing enemy general, Sisera. Clever, huh? She was exactly where she needed to be when Sisera abandoned his chariots and ran for his life. It's extraordinary. And it just reminds me, or us, of the lengths to which the Lord will go. Somebody called this, um, a commentator talked about this little piece of divine trivia. And when I read that to John, he said, he was outraged. He said, that's not trivia. That's not trivia. It's minutiae, which I, all right, you're right. Of course it is. It's divine minutiae, and it matters so much. And how often we've seen that in our own lives, don't you think? I, I mean, it's not even on a par, but I've been trying to think of my own life. And I would encourage you to think of yours. Think over the last 10 days. Think of any possibility that there might have been the working of some divine minutiae in your lives. The coming together of circumstances, being somewhere you didn't expect to be. My John's not been well, and therefore we, and we're in the process of building a, a little barn, converting a barn, and therefore I have unexpectedly had to have a meeting, site meeting with an architect, site meeting with a builder, site meeting with various people. I mean, terribly grown up, and terribly out of, you know, way beyond my pay grade. And there I am having these meetings, and in every single occasion, four of them that I could count, I will spare you more detail, everybody was in the right place at the right time, as, as was I. It was so kind of Jesus because I was out of my depth and these are big decisions and these are important people and well, who am I? And yet every point, he was there for me. And you know, if you start being aware of that, isn't that nice? If you start to become aware of it, you realize how good he is. 
He's for you, people. He's for you. He's for all the minutiae of our lives. He's for us. And we sometimes don't reckon how for us he is and to what lengths he will go on our account. It's extraordinary. And then there's a third element here, the poetic song. And here we have the Bible as poetry. And sadly, there isn't time to read it all now. But the next chapter, Judges 5, is called The Song of Deborah. Because not only was she an incredibly competent woman, and she was a judge, and she was this and she was that, she was a prophetess. Very few prophetesses named in the scriptures like that. But she was a worshiper. She was a worshiper. She went out ahead of armies. We hear about her as a soldier going out ahead of armies. But she was worshiping as she went. She led the armies of Israel worshiping. We need to, to lead the armies of our churches by worshiping as we go out across the land. We worship people, which is why this is so important, why your worship goes out, why we talk about your worship, why I couldn't wait to get here this morning because I knew I would get to worship with the saints. It's such a powerful dynamic. It's amazing. But her song expands on the history, it throws light on things, it helps us to interpret the story, it brings extra life, it adds emotion. And of course, it's not unique to the book of Judges. You've got the, all of the Psalms of God's poetry. You've got Moses singing in Exodus 15 of their deliverance. You've got Jonah's psalm when he got out of the whale. You've got Hezekiah's psalm of song of praise and gratitude when God delivered him from his sickness in Isaiah 38. It's all there. So I beg you, if I may, when you go away this week, read Judges 4 and read Judges 5 at a go. It's amazing what you see in the story and then you suddenly realize Deborah's way of having um, interpreted it, if you like. She sang of the Lord at the head of his armies. She sang of the beleaguered state of the land, the winding paths and the deserted villages. She sang of the battle waged and the wonderful tribes that joined her. She sang too of the cowardly tri tribes that sat on the banks of the river and stayed at home. She spared none. And then she also sang of what we would otherwise not know. The rout of Sisera's army was due to a heaven-sent, quite literally, flash flood in the Kishon Valley. It should not have happened. From the heavens the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, march on my soul, be strong. And then thundered the horse's hooves, galloping, galloping, galloping. I mean, you wouldn't have known that from the text, but you knew it from the song. And that's why we do them together. That's why we need both and. So that's how the story was told. This now is how the story was peopled. All stories are made up of people. You have your heroes and your villains, from Greek dramas to those dreadful Christian pantomimes. There's always, a, oh really, there always is a hero and a villain. So Judges 4 begins with the Canaanites, the enemy, victorious, and it closes with them vanquished. The chapter begins with the Israelites cowed, and it ends with them conquerors. Large people on either end of this chapter, like bookends, and then in between them, there are five extraordinary characters. Jabin was the king of Canaan. We don't see much of him. He's a shadowy figure. He would have been in charge of operations behind the scenes. Sisera was his on-stage representative with 900 iron chariots and a nasty attitude. And then there was Deborah. Enter Deborah. Deborah was a wife, probably a mother. 
She and her husband, Lapidoth, according to one Jewish scholar, were probably candle makers, and they would have made the candles used in worship. But what is important is she was a prophetess. She was trusted to hear from God. She was a judge. She was trusted by her people for her track record. She was a leader of great importance entrusted by her God to lead his people. And she was a worshiper. She held court under a palm tree simply because there really was nowhere it would have been inappropriate as a woman in that time to go in a closed, enclosed setting or in her own home. So people would come to her and she would have heard their complaints and settled their issues, much as Moses did in Exodus 18. The people came to her because they knew she was a proven source of wisdom. In our parlance, she knew the Lord, she recognized his voice, she dispensed his counsel, and the people knew it. And, my brothers and sisters, there is nothing more safe and dependable than a leader who does. Now, I don't know if you're going where I'm going here, but quite honestly, you are incredibly blessed in this place with leaders for whom all those characteristics are true. Okay? I'm just saying. Just saying. But it's so precious. And of course, it's why this church is flying in so many wonderful ways. So not only did the people come to her, she was also able to summon the commander and lead him out. And she sounds to me a marvelous character. Marvelous, marvelous character. She was a woman operating at a level of leadership, clearly unusual. But you know, I'm not sure that this chapter is actually primarily about women. Peace with your theme. Because even though two of its main protagonists are women, this is really a chapter about leadership. And in my very humble view, leadership has only ever been about gifting, anointing, calling by God, and not about gender. So I've been looking at Deborah, and I've been looking at things on the World Wide Web, which are incredibly awful in most cases. And there are some terrible things said about this woman. Terrible. And things like she was only chosen as second best because the other fellow was a bit of a wimp, which is a very weak translation of the whole thing. She was a leader, people. She wasn't a second best. She was nobody's second best. And it's interesting, isn't it, how when people come to discuss the whole issue of men and women in leadership, sometimes there are circles of the church, praise God it's not us at the moment, where there's a leanness of soul, a meanness of spirit. Because it was always God's grace and his goodness and his kindness and his sense of joining us into things that included us in men and women alike. So quite honestly, I would even look to Deborah as evidence that when it comes to ministry, God is gender blind. I think. I think you're in a wonderful series. I'd love to hear the rest of what the other people teach on all these fine women. And if we weren't so far from Exeter to Peterborough and the railway lines didn't keep buckling, I might come back more often. So anyway, God chose Deborah. He gifted her. He equipped her. He anointed her. He honored her. He entrusted her to lead his people at this very, very rocky point in their history. He loved her, he was proud of her, he entrusted her with leadership, not because she was a woman, not although she was a woman. He chose her because she was a leader and she was to be trusted. End of. End of. And then, of course, we have Barak, who doesn't come out terribly well, but 
He did go in the end, after a bit of a whine, he went, and he even got a place in the Hall of Fame in Hebrews, so he's got to have done something right. He was probably a good soldier at the end of the day. And then there's the final protagonist, I'm hurrying on clearly, um, who is Jael. Now that's a woman not to be messed with, frankly. She's not exactly a model for women. In, I mean, we're not talking a quiet and gentle spirit here. <laughs> sort of hovering under the covering of her husband's tent. I think not. She's a powerful, powerful woman. And Sisera fled and happened upon Jael's tent and looked there for asylum. And of course, culturally, it would have been for her to do that. She welcomed him. And in Deborah's song, we learn she bought him curdled milk. This was another of my boys' moments. However, did you know curdled milk has soporific qualities and was their answer to our zopiclone? It was something that would help people to sleep. And it was known to be such, which again, and in a bowl fit for nobles, she flattered him, she welcomed him, she gave him something to help him sleep. All of that is in the text. And then, of course, she was very deft with a mallet. <laughs> and real move cross, because that's messy and horrible. But, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. It is extraordinary. The job got done, people. And the Lord is not going to be trifled with when it comes to his enemies and when it comes to his sin. He will not be trifled with. So, how is the story relevant? For all its seeming twists and turns, for the seeming randomness of the iron chariots and the flash floods, the tent pegs and the bowls of curdled milk, how is it relevant? Three very quick things. God chooses plans to involve people. Now, he could do absolutely anything he wants to do single-handedly and in secret, but he opts for a better way. It's certainly messier, it's more muddled, it's less satisfactory, it's not so tidy, it's not so predictable. But do you know, it's so honoring, it's so kind, it's so open-handed, so flattering, that he would choose to involve us in the outworking of his salvation on the earth. It's amazing. We are so honored. And Deborah sang in the beginning of her song, when the people willingly offer themselves, she sang, praise the Lord. And then later, a few verses later, my heart, she said, is with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord. This is you. This is me. This is dependent on our willingness and our availability to be caught up, scooped up in the purposes of God. And our very willingness to be involved in that way, whether it will affect his plans for our families, for our neighbors, our areas of city, our places of work, everything we do outside this place, all the plans that are made for this beautiful place. It's that that draws praise. It's that that marks out God's people. It's that that was so moving about seeing these people this morning and indeed in the previous service. Here are people who have said, yes, this is who we are. This is what we want. We are buying into this thing. They don't have to be high-flying high leaders, but they are willing people, they're available, they're ready, and they're ready to go, and that's, there are hundreds of you, hundreds of you who said yes to that, and God bless you for it, and God bless this church because of it, and may we stand back and watch the wonderful things that God will do because of it. It's because of you people. It's a wonderful thing. There's nothing like this side of heaven, what else would you do? How else would you waste your time other than in availability to Christ, his church, and his cause? And the people said, 
Amen. Not the end, but it's a good point. <laughs> Secondly, quickly, God chooses to work through his leaders. Deborah sang that the, that the Lord was well pleased, that God was well pleased when the princes in Israel took the lead. We need leaders because God is the final, he orders things. He likes functional government. He's into these important things. Leadership is a God-given function without which people flounder. It's the beginning and end of it. And it can be practiced at so many levels. You know, you may be in Starbucks having coffee with a friend. You may have a small group in your house. You may be at a car parking thingy. Or you may do distributing of compassion food. And you turn around and there are two or three people who want to do it with you. It's a leader thing. You're leading. We make it highfalutin and so big skill. No, we all of us have the potential to do these things. It's a wonderful thing. And a church like this, of course, is full of leaders in many, many ways. But you see, leadership is not a talent show. It's not a beauty contest. It's not a status symbol. It's not a trophy to be dusted down and put on the shelf. Oh, I'm a leader. It's none of that stuff. To be a leader, people, is to be a servant. It's to be a servant of everybody else. And leadership is a call to downward mobility. It really is. And in this country, in our country, and lead me not down this rabbit trail that I'm in danger of pursuing, ministers of state, ministries in government, the word came from the Lord in the beginning because it stands for servant. We are looking for our leaders, please God, who will serve the people of this land. That's what we're looking for. Servant leaders and God have mercy on us and give them to us. Carol Wimber used to say, leaders are given as gifts to the church by God. And of course, whatever gift he gives, he can just as easily take away. Our favorite quote at the moment, John's particularly, and he has put in a request to have it on his gravestone. It's a little bit premature. I hope, I hope he's all right back home. I didn't check this morning actually, but I think he's okay. But his, his, his request, my, my request is to sing that song at my uh, funeral, The Goodness of God, make a note of that. And John's request is this, Count Zinzendorf, leader of the Moravians, who held of course a hundred year prayer meeting and affected history. Listen to this, Count Zinzendorf said, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. End of. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that genius? We're not in this for legacies, people. We're not in this for reputations. We're not in this for big names. We're not in this for our status. We're in this for the gospel. We're in this for Jesus. And, we're, and we'll die in the attempt. So I'm here for Jesus. Then I die. And then I'm forgotten. Because I am remembered and I am in heaven. And that's all that counts. So it's a great quotation, great quotation. One of my favorite quotes is also another one from a woman called Elizabeth Rowe, born in 1674. She was an English poet and a hymn writer. And she, she wrote this about leadership. Send whom thou, whom thou wilt, she said, to kings and rulers of the earth. But let me be a servant to the servants of my Lord. Let me administer to the afflicted members of my exalted and glorious Redeemer. Let this be my lot, and I give the glories of the world to the wind. It's beautiful. 
And then, of course, finally, and much more quickly, how is the story of Deborah so relevant? Because it tells us that God is ultimately in control. Over every bowl of curdled milk, over every tent peg, over every circumstance in your life, God is ultimately in control. And it's very reassuring, people, in difficult days, it's reassuring to be reminded. So read Deborah 4 and 5 together, and then look at Revelation 4 and 5 together. Fascinating partnerships in both cases. And 4 and 5 remind us of the truth that we've just read about in Judges. That God is seated on the only throne that counts for anything. He is at the very heart, the very control room of history. He's at the very nerve center of the universe. He's been where he always has, and he's going nowhere. And that is our ultimate confidence. As the wonderful Charles Spurgeon once wrote, Providence is a soft pillow for anxious heads. Now, God in his power and his mercy will use all sorts of ways to bring about his purposes. And it's often unpredictable, but he's bound to his promises. He's bound to his promises and he will see us through. Thick and thin. COVID and elections. You know, the stuff that they went through. Awful stuff. God will see us through. And then you say, well, who in the story? Who judged? Who made the decisions? Who gave the instructions? Well, the leader that the Lord had raised up, yes. But dash it all, at the end of the day, who can summon up a thunderstorm? Who can turn a desert into mud? It's God who's on the throne, people. It's God that's on the throne. And you and I, through thick and thin, through whatever happens, and I challenge you with anything going on in your lives, to say that basically you have lived and you do live and ever will live in the goodness of God. That's what we're about. That's who we are. And he is for us. And that's what I long that you should take away from this. March on, my soul, be strong, she sang. And her song resonates to this day in the hearts of God's people. It makes me weep. It strengthens us in our faith, people. It steadies us in our nerve. And it assures us yet again that God is ultimately in control. It is well with my soul. And therefore, march on. So you precious, precious men and women, brothers and sisters of Kingsgate, it's time to march on. There's been a season. We've had a time. But this place is filling again. And there's more to be done than there's ever been done before. And the stuff outside the extent of your car park that is begging for your attention. So I would encourage you, I would encourage you, and I would say march on, dear souls, with strength, and know that it's worth it all. God bless you, wonderful, wonderful people. And why don't you stand, and we will pray before we finish. God bless you, people. God bless you. You are well-pleasing. You're, you're well-pleasing to God as a church, as a people. He is well-pleased. He's well-pleased as he looks at you this morning. He's well-pleased as you raise your hands in worship to him. He's well-pleased as you fall on your faces at the wonder of his throne. 
He's well pleased with you for standing strong through thick and thin. He's well pleased that many of you have borne terrible suffering. Many of you are in anxious places. He's well pleased with you. So Lord, would you come? Would you come by your Holy Spirit right now? Come by your Holy Spirit. Will you come and fill the men and women in this room? And by that spirit, would you alight, would you alight the truth of the words that we've talked about this morning? Would you come like divine match to the touch paper of the scriptures and would you set them alive in our lives? Would you strengthen our nerves? Would you heal our pains? Would you help us to look past all that stuff and to go with our souls stronger? And I know there are men and women in this place for whom maybe some of this is all very new. Believe me, believe me. With Jesus in your life, it is well with your soul. Some of you may be on the periphery. Some of you may be online. Some of you may be in Cambridge or Leicester. But all of us need Jesus because it's the only way we're going to get through all this. So come, Holy Spirit. Come, bless us. And bless the people of this wonderful, wonderful church. Fire their rockets again. Put a spring in their step. Blood in their veins, the wind in their sails. That they may indeed go out to live and to work to your praise and glory. And they said together, Amen. Amen.